Welcome to Chine Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorris. With us is Daniel Estelin, award-winning investigative journalist, radio host, and the author of The True History of the Bilderberg Group, the international bestseller about the annual meeting of leaders from Western Europe, Canada, and the United States. His other Chine Day books include Shadow Masters, how governments and their intelligence agencies are working with drug dealers and terrorists for mutual benefit and profit, in the Shadows of a Presidency, a behind-the-scenes chronicle of how Donald Trump became president. Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering the Masses. Trans-Evolution, The Coming Age of Human Deconstruction. Deconstructing WikiLeaks, The Octopus Deception, a novel. And Global Projects at War, Tectonic Processes of Global Transformation. Daniel and Chris, it's great to be with you both. Thank you so much for the invitation, for the introduction. And thank you, Daniel, for coming on. So um, you're, in, you're in Mexico these days. I've been in Mexico these days for the past two and a half years when the COVID thing started. Um, we were going to go skiing, actually, for the spring break back in March 2020. And two days before the spring break, we had our skis, everything laid out in the living room, ready to go to Monterey Blonde. That's where the Bilderbergers had met back in 1968, one of the best places to ski. We love skiing. Uh, uh, my wife and I and our four kids. And then, you know, this Trudeau character, the prime minister of Canada, he announced this thing, COVID something, I didn't quite understand what it was. But when he said that they're shutting schools down for three weeks, just in case, <laughs> I said to myself, this doesn't smell very good. Let's get the hell out of Canada. And so we went to Mexico. And one of the reasons we chose Mexico, first of all, I worked with the president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, helped with the last presidential campaign, which he won, uh, although they tried to steal it again, as they've done the two previous uh, national elections back in 2006 and 2012. Big country, lots of places to go, you know, sun, the sea, uh, resorts, cheap food, wonderful weather, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, we came on the 17th, I believe, of March 2020, and on the 20th, on the 21st, four days later, the government shut the borders down, and the rest is history. Yeah, and well, and, and you, you you speak Spanish well too. I mean that that I helps. speak Spanish. I speak Spanish fluently. I work with a lot of different governments in Latin America, um, with the current the new president of Colombia, with people in 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 Bolivia, with people in Venezuela, Mexico, obviously Nicaragua, uh, Peru, so and Cuba, Fidel Castro back in 2010. I'm actually fascinated by my book. Do you remember the story Fidel Castro? He read my book, our book on the Bilderbergers. He loved the book and he invited me over and we spent a week together last week in August 20, uh, 2010. That was my birthday. We celebrated it together with a comandante. <laughs> that was something else. Right. Well, yes, I, I hear our books are, are very popular um, in uh, Latin America and in, in South America. I've been told by uh, travelers down there that um, they see a bunch of our books, uh, you know, being sold most most everywhere. A lot of them are are bootlegs, but you know, the object is to them, get the information out them, there. A lot of them are bootlegs. Let me tell you a story. Back in, uh, I think it was twenty eleven or twenty twelve, somewhere there, I was invited as the guest of honor to the uh, uh, book fair in Lima, in Peru. And on the way from Spain, I stopped off in Colombia in Bogota and gave a couple of speeches presentations, conferences, so to speak. Um, after the conference, which was well attended, over a thousand people, and a bunch of them, probably five, six hundred people lined up trying to get a, you know, their book signed. And so the first guy that came up 
with four books. Four of them are both like pirated versions. And so, and so he said to me, he said, you know, uh, there, you know, you, you, you mentioned pictures, but there are no pictures in this book. And I said to him, I said, compadre, <laughs> did you buy this in a bookstore or is it like bootleg version? And he kind of looked at me and, <laughs> and he said, I, you know, I got it from a guy in the street. I said, well, that's the reason. And so I signed all the books, but it's absolutely true. It is also true for, um, for some unknown reason in place like Peru, uh, uh, you know, a book is more expensive than it is in the United States. Considering that an average salary in a country like Peru is about $400 a month, which is one of the reasons one of the biggest industries actually in Peru controlled by the local mafia is the book publisher. And it's the only country, I think, in the entire world, by for sure in the Western Hemisphere, where newspapers, national newspapers, have two official best-selling lists. The official best-selling list based on the bookstore selling books and the uh, second unofficial best-selling list of the mafia-run enterprises such as the bootleg versions. And I think I'm the only person in the history of Peru who at one time back in 2011 or 2012 was number one on both lists simultaneously. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I tried to work with Richard Chaclavili, however you say his name, on uh, doing a book, but we just couldn't quite come to uh, agreement on some things. Um, who? Who did you talk to? The gentleman who worked with uh, Victor Boot. Chichakli. A Richard very, Chichakli. very interesting uh, gentleman. Very He's interesting. a very interesting character. And actually, we talk about him quite a bit in uh, Shadow Masters. We totally dismantle. I went to, as you remember, most listeners don't know. I went to Thailand. When Victor Boot and I have been friends for many, many years. I was in Africa at the time when I started the in the counterintelligence in the early 1990s. You know, Russia had a very Soviet Union strong presence on the continent. It was, you know, hands on. We were there. It's, it's human intelligence. The Americans used technology. We were there, you know, in situ. We have a different concept of how intelligence works. And so uh, as most Russian analysts were leaving the continent, you know, I was coming in. It was, you know, a wrong place at the wrong time. Victor Boot and his people saved our lives quite a few times. And so when a friend of mine um, was many years ago, uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, Dmitry Halizov uh, called me and said, you know, Victor was arrested today in Thailand. I, you know, I've got my family shadow house and we went to Thailand. We spent almost a year. They're trying to fight the Russians and the Americans who are working together to get Victor Booth sent to the United States. Why is a long story, but if people are interested, again, get Shadow Masters. It's an amazing book that totally destroys the, you know, the, the, the discourse of the dialectic of the American government about who, who Booth was and what he did. And uh, I tell you, you know, I, 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 we did everything humanly possible. You know, both of us, uh, Dmitry Halazov and I, on my money, which is, you know, I'm not a billionaire, I'm not a millionaire, but, you know, Victor is a friend and he did save my life many, many times over in Africa. So I felt that I owned that. And, uh, you know, we kept the Americans and the Russians at bay for almost a year. And he would have won had he listened to us instead of the Russian government. But anyway, to make a long story short, hopefully he'll be traded for the Americans who the Russians have right now in their uh, penal system. Well, it, you know, it's, it was very interesting. I mean, well, you know, we've been doing this book, Valediction, which uh, you're familiar with. You've been uh, interviewing Liz and uh, Paul, yeah. Liz, Liz and Paul. And, you know, and they've been talking about, you know, narratives and whatnot. And, and Victor Boot became very um, used and abused um, in, in the narratives. You know, that's one, one of my posits is how they'll pick 
particular people like uh, Nixon and then and then Hunt became a, a friend of Nixon. And so they have to create these narratives to, to make us think certain things. Well, you um, see, the thing with Booth, uh, Chris, is that uh, speaking of the narrative, you're absolutely right. How did Booth become so big? Well, you see, when the Soviet Union uh, fell apart, Booth was working as a translator in Mozambique. He's fluent in nine languages. He's fluent in English and Spanish and French and in, in uh, various local Esperanto. Dialects. He was a big Esperanto guy, too. I he mean, was he was always Esperanto. interested in languages. Exactly. Well, he's, you know, he, he's a really, really, really smart guy. Uh, what, what had happened was, that, again, you know, Victor was working uh, in, in the Mozambique embassy where he had met his, his wife, his second wife, Ala uh, Boot. Uh, and, you know, they became romantically involved. They got married. But when the Soviet Union fell apart, he was a junior lieutenant. That was, again, uh, 1991, early 1992. And so they said to him, you know, you can go back to Russia, no longer a Soviet Union, to Russia, and you'll have a monthly salary of about $12 a, a month, basically, which is what I was making the first, you know, first few months I was in Africa in 19, maybe a little bit more, maybe like $30, okay, 30 American dollars a month while I was in Africa. And and, and so Boots said, I'm not going to go back, you know, for 10, 12 bucks a month. You love Africa. And again, it's difficult to explain to people who have never been to Africa. And it's by huge, Africa, it's huge. It's not only that it's huge, like Sudan, for example, because most Americans are not very good at geography. Well, most, no one is really good at geography. But Sudan, size-wise, is bigger than Western Europe. And again, we talk about this in, the, uh, in, in, in one of the books. Well, I, it's actually the Spanish version of, of the Shadow Masters, where I explain what was happening was saved our fool, that kind of stuff. But the idea is, is that Sudan being bigger than all of Western Europe. So when they're talking about, you know, the media, the electric discourse, all these two groups fighting each other, you can't fight. Imagine this. How do two groups find each other in a country that's bigger than Western Europe? One is in Sweden and the other one is in, you know, in, in the uh, metaphorical Spain. How do you find each other? You can't. Those of us who have been to Africa, it's an amazing place. The color, the smells, the sounds, the the nature itself is is unlike anything in this world. So you you know you can call it the African disease, whatever you want to call it, in a positive sense of the word. And so Victor didn't want to go back home. He had nothing to go back to. So he and his brother Sergey they stayed in Africa, and they decided to run a business because they loved flying, they loved airplanes. So basically, for the first couple of years, they found guys who wanted to move stuff, and they found people who had airplanes. They got them together, and as the middlemen, they made some money. And they made enough money in 92, 93, 94 to buy themselves to have about a half a million dollars in cash. And with that half a million bucks, they bought a couple of old Russian, you know, clunker planes. But Russian top were huge planes that can move all kinds of stuff. They're very durable, but they're very old. You can buy them for 250,000 bucks. I mean, a second or third hand Boeing, you couldn't pick it up for anything less than half a million, five million dollars. And so over time, late 1994, 1995, Africa was teeming, you know, with, with, with agencies and NGOs were all, you know, cover operations. They left Africa because the idea was Russia was the feeding frenzy, okay? Rape of Russia, destruction, dismantling the country. So they left Africa. They went to Russia because there was a lot of money to be made in dismantling the country. And basically, Book found himself in a position he had no competition, all these countries, the war alone, I mean, this is a big continent with 54 nations right now. At the time, it was 53 or 52. Anyway, all these countries, they needed medical help, emergencies, NGOs, you know, all kinds of things to move things. And there was no one to do the work because all of them went to Russia. And so Booth basically, you know, had the, the, uh, uh, the dominion of Africa. You can think of us, you know, as, as Microsoft having control of 90% of the continent. 
And the dictators and the, you know, the president, the tribal chiefs in Africa found it much easier to work with Booth than working with, you know, U.S. government, the CIA, the, the FBI, the Mossad, these, you know, the, the, the MI6. And so when in between 1994, 1995 and early 1996, Booth had built himself quite an empire. He had 20 something planes. He had six or seven uh, Mi-8 helicopters, you know, so and he had all these Russian uh, military pilots. Who in Russia making again ten bucks a month, and he was paying them three, four thousand dollars. So needless to say, he had the best pilots, the best crews, and he controlled the whole continent. And when the CIA and company, you know, when they when they finished dismantling Russia, they wanted to go back to Africa. They realized they couldn't because this Russian guy by the name of Victor Booth controlled the entire continent. And so they created this, you know, this the story, you know, Victor Booth, the arms dealer, okay, right. and the rest the rest is history. Right. I mean, most of what he was carrying was a, a lot of household goods and other let me things. Tell you he a story about, he wasn't let me, just moving uh, arms. And, and when you move arms, you have to have a certificate from one certificate to the other. And, and he, all had the, all that he, he had all the certificates. And basically, uh, you know, part of the narrative was to cover up uh, what uh, the French president's son was doing, who got caught you know, uh, exactly. with millions more is. more weapons than than Boot was ever. The Democratic Party, exactly. But also um, the uh, um, what was I going to say? Um, I want to know how Boot saved your life. Well, yeah, because again, you know, there are so many times we're outnumbered by these African tribes. There were so few of us. We, you know, our magazines were almost empty. We had enough bullets to put a bullet in our head and maybe a couple of more. They didn't know that. So they kept, you know, kept a safe distance, but they would basically follow us, knowing that eventually we would just collapse from exhaustion. <laughs> uh, it's not a very pleasant scenario knowing that if you stop, you die. They eat you. You know, they, 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 they literally kill you and eat you in a little bite-sized pieces. And, you know, I don't think like in these Hollywood films, Chris, suddenly when it's like mayday, mayday, you have no hope and you have like one bullet left and there are six of you, four of you are exhausted, two of you are almost dead. You know, the Africans are like literally maybe like three, 400 meters away. This huge, you know, top of jet is coming. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a Rambo film. You say to yourself, this can't possibly be true. How did he find us? I mean, this is a huge continent. And that happened three or four times. Not necessarily Boot himself, but his people. Okay. And so I owed it to him. And basically, we did everything we could to try to save his life. Well, wonderful. Well, now, now, Paul and Liz, you've been, you've been talking to them. What, 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 what's your take on, on their story? I mean, this is the real deal. These people know what they're talking about. They've done all the footwork. They've not only investigative journalists, they have all the data and all the information. Again, a lot of it is fascinating because it goes into the esoteric elements of it, which to a lot of people is difficult to fathom. But when you start putting it together, like, for example, the last book I had, them, we were talking about, you know, the Kennedys, we're talking about their roots going way back in time. I mean, it's a fascinating story. Okay, I mean, there's a one thing you can talk with, you know, we talked about the Da Vinci called what if, but this isn't a what if this is the real deal. And so talking to them, because again, one of the what, what is it that I do? What kind of books do I write? I write books that basically analyze from a conceptual perspective, the way the control grid works, the way social, the secret societies work, the way these private organizations historically have worked together to control humanity. 
And this is a, you know, one of the reasons why I was so fascinating, uh, fascinated to actually talk to Liz and Paul, because this is in Afghanistan, you know, which is a fairly recent story. Even when I go back to their book, the late 1970s, early 1980s, they go back like way back in time. We're talking about 800 years. We're talking about the, you know, the Knight Templars. We're talking about all kinds of things, which to most people today make no sense at all until you start putting it together. Okay, and from a conceptual point of view, it's an amazing story. And I very much recommend for those of you who are watching this interview, please go back and read their books. Okay. So you, you've got to go pick up your kids here pretty soon. Uh, I, I, I have a couple of, you know, a, a couple of things. Like one of the things we're seeing right now is this thing of global control, the control grid. You and I have talked about this a lot. You're, you know, you're an expert on the control grid. And there again, CIA drugs is part of the control grid. But I think what we're seeing right now all around, all around us on a global scale is an attempt at this global control, the race against you know time, because the elite is running out of time. So again, I want to explain to people how it works because most people don't understand. Because most people, again, they ask me, how is it possible we have the president, we have prime ministry, you have the Supreme Court, you have the United Nations. You know, if they really wanted to, they could control it. Okay. And then the opposite, it's like, well, the UFOs, the shapeshifters, you know, it's not us, it's somebody else. But, you know, I just want to explain to people how it works. Imagine you're a global mafia and you want to control every country in the world. But, you know, how do you do that? A global mafia doesn't, doesn't have the armed force. It doesn't have the, the nuclear weapons. So how do you control it? Well, first of all, you have to give people the big idea. I talk about this in my book on the Tavistock Institute because people are tired to death, you know, discontrol, disorder, crime, et cetera, et cetera. What do they want? Okay. Give them, you know, give them a choice. You want democracy, you want national socialism, you want autocracy, you want communism. What do you want? And it's irrelevant, obviously, who the president or the prime minister is, as long as this a global mafia controls the resource, et cetera. So, again, how can this be achieved? You have these cultural elements of control. One of the ways to do this is make people hate each other. Again, look at the United States, case in point, okay? And also make people hate their country. Again, look at the United States. And therefore, globally, you have demonstrations, you have lawlessness, you have depression, you have conflict. And what do people want? What people want order. And how do you give them order? Dictatorship, police state, big brother, big data, social rating, all the things we see today at the forefront. And so this global disorder... You know, to bring humanity closer to this global control under the rubric, and you pick war on terror, war on drugs, war on radicalism, war on COVID, whichever war you want. And so the bureaucratic control mechanism in every country is under the control of the same people. And objective, again, you sell people despair, you sell people hopelessness, and it is working. I think the numbers, if I'm not mistaken, is like over 130 million Americans. That's like, what is it, uh, about 35%? are on antidepressants. And if you look at it globally in 2019, that's you know the last year before COVID insanity, Europeans, okay, Western Europeans, I'm not talking about you know people in impoverished countries like Sri Lanka, I'm talking about wealthy Europeans spend $900 billion on psychiatrists. Now, there's a rhetorical question, is that a healthy society? No, it's not. So what we're seeing is, again, control, this invisible control. And it is difficult to people explain it a lot of times because unless they can see it, they can touch it, okay? They don't understand it. But again, if you look at the elements of control, 
They're two, make people hate each other. And we're seeing that in America. We're seeing that in Canada. We're seeing that in Europe. It doesn't matter if it's Trump, anti-Trump, abortion, anti-abortion, whatever you want, black, white, yellow, orange. Okay, and then you make people hate your country. And so you dismantle it from within. And again, this is one of the things that I love about, you know, trying day publishing, come back to your publishing company, is that you guys publish books that deal with all these issues and explain to people. I don't know, I think, what is it, a hundred titles you guys have already or more? Okay. About 160. Well, they're all amazing books. They're all amazing books because they explain to people the hidden history of control in a nutshell. And we need to understand how this control grid works. Otherwise, we have no chance of humanity or as humanity. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and the cancel culture, I mean, I can't get a Wikipedia page and, you know, and, and our, our books don't get covered. You, uh, I have a couple of minutes, you know, talking about cancel culture. Let me know, because, again, cancel culture, this is liberalism and liberalism is an ideology that I'm not talking about, you know, Voltaire liberalism for the 19th century. I'm talking about today's parasitic liberals, which is an ideology that prioritizes the liberation of the individual from all forms of collective identity. Okay, and it began historically with Protestant Reformation, the abolition of the medieval estates or strata of society. Okay, and then if you kind of go back to, to the 20th century, the ideology of extreme nationalism, which is fascism, was born challenging both liberalism and communism. And at the forefront, they put the principle of the nation state for the Nazis, race for the National Socialists, and the defeat of fascism, for example, in 1945, removed this ideology from the agenda, and the image of the future was uh, contested between liberals and communists. And liberal West won, the Soviet Union collapsed, and communist China embarked on a different path of free economy, okay? But today, if you look at it, democracy has become, or to be defined, I guess, as a rule of minority against the majority, which is a deliberately criminal majority. At any time under the influence of populist sentiments, who can elect Trump or Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? And so the final stage, if we kind of extrapolate this into the future, for the liberals is the abolition of humanity, the politics of post-humanism. And the liberation of collective identity requires what? The abolition of species. Okay, so you have liberal futurists already praising the new possibilities of post-humanism. So we've gone from humanism to transhumanism to post-humanism, which is the fusion with the machine, which will greatly enhance body strength, our memory, our heightened sensations, genetic engineering. And I talk about all of this in, in the book, which you published back in 2014, I think, uh, the trans-evolution, trans the coming age of, of human uh, deconstruction. In other words, and I finish, the Great Reset, if we kind of take it to, you know, to, to, to what they're talking about right now, is the triumph of liberal ideology in its highest stage. In other words, in a stage of globalization. And all those who do not agree with such an agenda are declared the enemies of this open society. And so they're, they're encouraged to voluntarily surrender or kill themselves. Otherwise, the whole progressive world will turn against us, which is one of the reasons why you can't have a Wikipedia page, you know, with the unlimited finances, military, technical potential, inexhaustible ability to control the imagination of humanity. And this is where we're at today. Okay, because again, the great reset is this last rung of human progress as understood by liberal thought. I, I, I look at it as, as a lot of words that they're trying to basically uh, shove down our throat and in reality, uh, people are going to do what they're going to do. 
So it, it's, you know, we live in very interesting times. Again, Bruce, you have any uh, question or comment? That's the Valediction Resurrection by Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould. I might want to insert that. That's an amazing book. I mean, that is an amazing book. I had so much fun reading the book. I read it really quickly. I read it like in two days because I wanted to interview them. But I'm going to go back and read that book several times. because just so much stuff. Because Well, we're, you know, we're doing some roundtables uh, about this book and about, you know, bringing peace in the world and, you know, using music and other things uh, to accomplish this. Because, you know, when it gets down to it, the people would really just like to uh, live and, you know, quit bothering us all about all this well, that's, that's a, stuff. Just, they, they, they need to bother us because there's just too many of us and we want to be independent and think for ourselves so that they need to destroy the you know the, the culture, they need to destroy the education system, need to destroy nation states and create this global state, which hopefully, you know, if we're smart enough, we won't let them do it. Well, they, they aren't going to get to do all this, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm still very, 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 very hopeful. Chris Milligan, hopeless romantic. <laughs> <laughs> well, onwards. Thank you again, Chris. Take care. Thank you.